0: You're listening to the 2020 Central Texas Men's Conference. This year's speaker was Peter Reed. Learn more at centraltexasmc.com. Well, as I've been conversing with you, there have been some questions about the ministry of torchbearers, and I wanted to fill in some of the blanks this morning just so you understand what it is that we're involved in because it could be that somebody's seated here and it would be of interest to them. So let me do this. I brought some pictures with these, me this morning and uh, I'll just flip through them. This is Major Ian Thomas. A couple of his books are back there on the back table. One is called The Saving Life of Christ. The other one is called The Indwelling Life of Christ. There's a third book there that is written by a man named Watchman Nee who is a pastor in China and it's his exposition of Romans chapter 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 5 to 8, and I would highly recommend all three of those books. Major Thomas uh, was part of the British occupation forces in Germany after the war. He took over the administration of a city near Wuppertal, and um, at one point after the war, he was flying over Germany, and God laid it on his heart, we're going to love these people who have been our enemies. And so, he had a love for the German people, in particular for young people, and he wanted some place to house them. And so, in 1946, he sent his wife and a businessman, who was a friend of his, who lived in London, up to Northern England, to bid on a piece of property. They called it a country home. He told his wife he had saved 7,000 English pounds, and he said, you can go up there and bid that much. While she, being a good shopper, bid a little bit more. And in the goodness of God, they got the property. And in 1947, they started to invite German young people, in particular those who had been involved in the the Nazi youth programs, and he wanted to get them out of there and preach the gospel to them. And so the government of, of England at the time was sponsoring any school, any hostel, any camp that would have German young people come under the condition that the British government could come in and teach them the principles of democracy one day a week. And so he, he got into that program and that summer in 1947 he invited about 30 German young people to this center in England. And all 30 of them received Christ. And, and he said, what are we going to call you when, when you get back to England? Or excuse me, Germany. And they were singing a chorus at that time among German young people in the church. And there was a line in it that said, we're the torchbearers. And we're carrying the, the light of Christ back to the dark world. The word in German is fackelträger. And um, so they went back to Germany and he drove his car, uh, you know, over to Germany and he would visit them in their small towns. Hitler built the Audubon system for military purposes and in 1947, 48, 49, there were not many cars driving around Germany. And he would visit them in their homes and speak in their youth groups and more and more young people came to Christ, so many that they needed a foundation in the word. And so he began a Bible school for about three months, and although it was in England, it was held in German because there were so many German young people uh, receiving Christ. And for those who have lived through that period, they've told me it was like a Pentecost movement in in Germany. God was just moving among a broken situation among people on the fringes. Next picture is his wife, Joan. Uh, This is at one of our uh, staff conferences. My wife, Gabby and I were there and uh, she really she she was the one who went up and bought this place she she served people and she lived in the background of her husband for years and uh, he went to be with the Lord at age 92 in 2007 and she said doggone it I'm going to do something better than him so she put herself to living longer than he did and so she has, she's 98 now, and, and I was in her, her, her home, and Lord willing, I'll see her next week, and we were standing there, and I looked, took this godly lady's hand in mine, and I prayed as we left, and I said amen, and then she looked me in the eye, and with a pensive look in her face, she said, well, I'll be waiting in heaven for you. And then with a twinkle in her eye, she said, and I'll do everything I can to make sure even you can get in too. <laughs> next picture is this 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 country house up in northern england it's a castle and it's called cape and ray hall and so that was what god gave them in his goodness and that's where these german young people came and that was the first torchbearer center it's called cape and ray hall up in count germany and so the Bible school expanded to six months, nine months. And it's interesting, God coupled a war hero with a conscious objector named e. T. Van Doren, who lived through the bombings in London, and he came up and began the Bible school ministry. And, and uh, it just began to grow. More people became Christians, more people received Christ. And, and really, the intent of the Bible school is for your own spiritual growth. It's not for a vocation. It's for life in Christ. And so people ask me, what's Bible school like? Well, it would be like sitting in these sessions that I'm giving this weekend, but for 24 weeks in a row. It's like a spiritual emphasis week. And um, that's, that's the reason for the Bible school. And that's our, our school in, uh, in uh, uh, England. Next picture, oh, that's my wife, Gabi. She comes from Stuttgart. When I met Gabi, she was a widow. And her husband had died of a brain tumor two years earlier. He was a doctor, and she was left as a single mom with two kids, age three and five. And she lived in a basement apartment in Stuttgart, and she tells me that one of her prayers was, you know, God, is this, is this my life now? And she cared for the kids and got involved in her church. She said, Lord, I have more capacity than this, you know, I'd, I'd like to serve you. And she knew at that time in her life that if she was ever going to remarry, it was just going to be to serve the Lord. And it's not many women who would go on the crazy life that I've had. And she's, she's the one. And God, when he has answers, he has complete answers. And one of the things that I needed to learn, I didn't, I didn't get married till I was 43, that, that marriage was not just about me. <laughs> And, and in her case, it was about two kids who had lost their father, about a, a widow, and it was about a ministry in Germany that now is expanded around the world. And you know, you marry over 40, hopefully, you can laugh at yourself and not take yourself too seriously. She, she told me soon after we got married, I just want you to know that not everything's my fault. I've did, done this one bef- before, so I know that your fault is, is, is at fault sometimes too. It's just great. We love each other to death, and I'll see her in Denver this afternoon. Our t- two kids, Katerina and Christian, uh, Kati is now 28, Christian is 26. They're both married, and we're just delighted uh, as to how the Lord has led them and just so thankful for them. You know, they never said to me, you know, you're not our dad we don't have to obey you they, they didn't say anything like that God just gave all of us soft hearts for one another and he's been very very good to a group of people that had experienced a lot of pain in the past this is the small beginnings of Bodensee where I live in southern Germany this is a farmhouse it was honed by a very godly family they began having bible studies there in a very catholic area of Germany And uh, this lady, Mrs. Cost, used to look out the backside of that farmhouse onto an orchard, and she'd pray, Lord, use this property for your glory. And to make a long story short, a man by the name of Charlie Moore and the local pastor Fritz Müller and and Hans Steinacher got together and they wanted to reach young people in southern Germany with the gospel. And and they had connections with torchbearers. And in 1962, they they formed an association called uh, the Bodensee of Christian Youth Center, which then blossomed into a Bible school in 1970. And it all began very small. And this lady had a daughter. Her name was Ilse. And, and they had given Bodensee a 50-year lease on this property. We wanted to do some renovations on the property in about 2011. We went to the last living member of this family. And we said, are you going to renew the lease? It's up in 2015. And this godly lady looked at us. And she just said, listen, I've long since given you that property in my will. Don't worry about it. But the lady who prayed her mother never got to see the day when God answered her prayer. And it teaches me that we're not always going to see what God is going to do. That's his business. And one day I'm going to get there and hopefully he'll say, well done, good and faithful servant. Success in the kingdom of God is going to be measured by our faithfulness, not numbers, not money, not a heritage, just faithfulness. So that was our small beginnings. And this is Bowdoin's today. And God has been very gracious uh, in honoring a disposition of heart that just said, Lord, we want you to provide for everything. And so to be honest with you, we don't do fundraising. We don't, we don't write letters of appeal. We just depend upon the Lord to send the people of his choice and to send the means to continue what he started. And he's been very, very good to us. Next picture, this is the inside of the foyer. Next picture, this is just what the Lord has been able to do. Those are some of the trees in the backyard of that farmhouse where she used to pray, Lord, use this property. And, and in the springtime, we can host over 1,200, 13, and 14-year-old German kids who take confirmation class in the Lutheran Church. And these believing pastors come to our center, and we just get to preach the gospel to them fantastic opportunity. Next picture. This is our dormitory built, like, built by a bunch of volunteers. You know, that's Neuschwanstein. Some of you have been there. Walt Disney patterned his castle after that one. Next picture is our dorm. Next picture is uh, just a lecture hall. We, you know, when Bible school begins, uh, we can show the next picture. We, we've got You know, about 110 students from 10 to 15 countries, that's why the Bible school is in English, and, and usually the, the average age is somewhere around 22 or 23, but there are some people who come after retirement, they're taking a break from work, and it, again, it's like a spiritual emphasis week, 24 weeks in a row. And if you come from Temple, Texas, and you walk into your room, you might land in a room with somebody from Nairobi, Tokyo, and Oslo. And all of a sudden you realize, wow, they do church really differently. And it's really, really good to meet the worldwide body of Christ because you learn a lot. This year, we have a young man from Khartoum in northern Sudan. And what that man has seen in his short lifetime just humbles the rest of us. We had a young man from Tajikistan who had a house church. His father was the pastor. And we said, tell us about the church. And he said things like, well, when we come together, we whisper the hymns, because the next building is about that close to ours, and if they knew we were Christians, they would shut us down. And there are still students who come to our school who say, you know what, I belong to a church where we have one copy of the Bible, and somebody gets it for the week, and they get to hand copy as much as possible during the week, and then they bring it, and another person gets to do it the next week. It's humbling. It's humbling. But the quality of their faith in Christ humbles me. I feel so superficial sometimes in their presence. And there's so much to learn from them. This is is my principal, Steve Volley. Steve Volley came from Wheaton, Illinois. And he knew the word of God, but he didn't know the God of the word. He'd grown up in a Christian family, but didn't know Christ. And one evening after lectures, he went into the the library right before Christmas break. He wasn't planning on coming back. And he knelt under a table and, and received Christ. And I liked Steve so much that I invited him to come back as the RA and then my right hand. And he just walked with me through Bible school. I brought him into every difficult situation, every difficult decision or conversation. And I said, Steve, learn from my mistakes. And then one day in 2014, when, when I was asked to be director of the whole work, it was a no-brainer to say, Steve, take it over. And he does a better job than I do. That's the way that it's supposed to be. God is faithful. This is our town. It's called Friedrichshafen. And uh, this was flattened during the war. My brother-in-law went to London into into Winston Churchill's war room. And there was a red dot over every target they were going to bomb in Germany. This city had a huge dot over it because they were making ammunition and tanks and testing long-range missiles. So our area was flattened. This is Bodensee. This is where I live. It's a lake that's 60 kilometers long, 14 wide. Next picture. And we've got the, you've seen that picture before. We got the better view because we look over to the Swiss Alps. Next picture. And that's what we see on a sunny day. It's just a nice place to live. So when people from Minnesota say, don't you want to come back home? I say, well, it's nice in Minnesota, but I live in a pretty nice place as well. Next picture. Is a place where we go hiking on the first weekend of Bible school, and usually that area called the Santis, uh that cures people of their homesickness. So we try and do that with them, and it's just a great place, great place to live. And you know, at Bodensee, if it's like 110 students from around the world, and we live together, we serve each other, we have outreach together, and we just do life together for 24 weeks, and it's a very rich experience. For six months of the year, we have then German conferences, youth, family week, soccer camp, English camp, and that's the, kind of the overview of our ministry in Germany, although we have 26 centers around the world, and basically they're involved in short-term Bible school and conference ministry and a lot of evangelism in the country where we live. So that's a little bit about the ministry, and I hope that that answers some of your questions. I'd like to pray. Father, we want to thank you for the opportunity to gather this week in order to come together and listen to you, to be encouraged by the body of Christ. And Lord Jesus, it's your presence in our midst that makes it rich. And we humble ourselves before you today and would want that you be our teacher and that you would take your word and break it small and feed our hearts. We thank you for that now and pray this in your name amen. I want to talk about the strength of the weak this morning. You know, if you read scripture, you'll notice very quickly that God never had a problem with weakness. It's not weakness that hinders the work of Christ in my life. It's unbelief, but never weakness. One of the old torchbearers who who raised me up in the faith, he said, Peter, silence speaks. And what he meant by that is this, if people are silent about their weakness, in particular a child of God, if they're silent about their weakness, it it makes everybody else feel out of place like there's got to be something terribly wrong with me because He certainly doesn't struggle with the weaknesses that I do. And you know what the value of a weekend like this is? You can be transparent with your brothers. And you know that this is part of the equation as a fallen person in a fallen world that lives with a perfect Savior, heading for a better tomorrow. Paul is very honest about his life in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, And uh, I want to read 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verses 6 to 11. And Paul says, For God who said light shall shine out of darkness is the one who is shown in our hearts to give the light and the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels, so that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not from ourselves. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not despairing, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying about in the body the dying of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our body. For we who live are constantly being delivered over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested. In our mortal flesh. I brought a quote this morning from a man named Ajith Fernando. Ajith Fernando is the national director of Youth for Christ in Sri Lanka. And anybody who knows about Sri Lanka knows that that's been a war-torn country for years. And he said something very, very pertinent to the subject of suffering among God's people. Whatever that form that would take. And he said, today in the church, we have a lot of emphasis on a therapies for suffering, but insufficient emphasis on a theology of suffering, which must form the basis of all therapy for suffering. You know, it's a hard question to answer when people say, why did God do this to me? And you know, sometimes you have to send send speechless in front of a question like that. And so when I was engaged to Gabi, my 12-year-old daughter at that time stood in front of me and she said, did my dad have to die in order for you to marry my mom? I was speechless. What do you tell a 12-year-old girl who lost her father when she was five years old and barely has a memory of him? Friends, it's indicative of the fact that we live in a fallen world. We're living east of Eden. And the mystery of this life is that God may not necessarily do things, but he may allow things that I don't understand. But as a child of God, we're headed for a better tomorrow and we're headed for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells and everything that went wrong here is going to be made right here, there. But you need to belong to Jesus in order to one day experience that. That's why sharing Christ is so important in a broken world. It's people like Joseph... who experienced so much at the hands even of a family that was supposed to be godly and a part of the heritage of Jesus. And at the end of Genesis, after his father Jacob had died and his brothers had come there, and they're fearing what Joseph is going to do to them in retaliation for what they did to him. Do you understand that? And so their thinking was, man, we're in for it. And Joseph said to them, do not be afraid. For am I in God's place? As for you, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. So there do not be afraid. I will provide for you and your little ones. And so he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. You know, life is lived looking forward, but it's usually understood looking backward. And Joseph could say to the very ones who intended evil, he said to them, I'm in God's place. And it's a mystery that I cannot reconcile in my small pea-sized brain that somebody might do something to me that their intent was evil and God is able to bring good out of that very thing. And our topic this weekend is community and we need to know that among those seated here or within the sound of my voice right now, some really bad things have happened to them. And we don't need to be a body that needs to call something bad good and just stick our our head in the sand. If it's bad, we can call it bad. But I always know, although God may not have done it to me, he allowed it and we may not see the purpose for it now, but one day we will. Friends, sometimes life doesn't turn out like I imagined. Because my ideas of how life should be were based on my imagination and not the revelation of God. And then what happens is, based upon our imagination, life didn't turn out like I thought it, it should, and I believe that I have a right to something that never happened. Then I get angry and depressed, and so instead of feeling bad all of the time, I choose to be bad, feel bad some of the time, and I just dull the pain a little bit, get into an addictive behavior pattern, ruin my life with greater choices than that, and it's a, it's a vicious circle. We need to know as God's people... That Jesus is not going to leave me alone in that. And so Paul said, light shall shine out of darkness. It's interesting, he didn't say light shall shine instead of darkness. Light shall shine out of darkness. That's something different. I grew up in the state of Minnesota, in the suburbs of Minneapolis. And living so close to a large city... I was not able to see all the stars that are in the sky. People say that you can see about 6,000 stars with the naked human eye. But it was when we would go camping up on Lake Superior on an island called Madeline Island, which is part of the Apostle Islands, that I would sit on the beach and the adults around the campfire would point out the different configurations in the stars. You see, the best place... To recognize a bright star is on a dark night. And for some people who walk through darkness in this lifetime, they're going to be able to recognize some things that they would normally not be able to recognize were it not for the darkness in their lives. And so we say with Job, and we recognize with Job, He reveals mysteries from the darkness. C.H. Spurgeon was a a very godly evangelist from England. And I've been told that he addressed crowds of 20,000 without a microphone. And many, many people came to Christ through his ministry. And I was in one way comforted to know that this great man of God suffered from depression. I didn't know that about him. But if you look through a, a series of books that he wrote called Lectures to My Students, he has one whole chapter on depression. And he had to go to southern France on a regular basis with a staff member in order to recover from these dark periods of depression. And I brought a quote this morning taken from that chapter out of one of his books, Lectures to My Students, and he said this He said, Spiritual darkness of any sort is to be avoided and not desired. And yet surprising as it may seem to be, it is a fact that some of God's best people frequently walk in darkness. Some of them are wrapped in a sevenfold gloom at times, and to them neither sun nor moon nor stars appear. The very choicest of God's people travel most of the way to heaven by night. They do not rejoice in the light of God's countenance, and though they trust in the shadow of his wings, they are on the way to eternal light, and yet they walk that way in darkness. And God used that man who was plagued by this dark night of the soul. And the light of Christ shone out of him. Honestly, I think sometimes God protects his glory among his people and he chooses the weak things of this world to make it very, very clear that was me and not the man or the woman or the child that I'm doing it through. God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong and the base things of the world. And the despised God has chosen the things that are not, that he might nullify the things that are so that no man may boast before God. First Corinthians chapter one. You know, in, in, in manufacturing today or in the area of finance, we We take a lot of time to get educated to create the optimal conditions to get the best results. The kingdom of God does not work that way. God doesn't have to have great conditions and great people to do a work of Christ. And so you look in John chapter 6 at the feeding of the 5,000. Andrew brings this little kid... has two stinky fish and five crusty loaves, and Andrew gives the evangelical attitude towards that, but what are these for so many people? Jesus took those very things, and he said, Father, thank you. I know what you're going to do right now. He took the fish and the loaves, and he broke them And gave them to the disciples as a testimony of the kind of material that he loves to use. And he gave, and he gave, and he gave, and he gave. And the interesting thing about that miracle, as many of his miracles, he chose to involve the disciples to participate in what he was doing with the foolish, broken things. Because participation in the miracle is always going to give us more assurance in our faith than just observation of the miracle. And so he involves us. In fact, he may make us weak, Just to show it, it's the power of God and not you. Beware if you ever find the perfect church or ministry, don't join it. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was was murdered six months before the end of the war in Germany. And there's a discussion in our country, what would have been of the church if God would have spared his life just six more months? And those closest to him when he was uh, murdered would have had reason to say, but God. And it was during that time that Dietrich Bonhoeffer said this, God sent his son not to fulfill my wishes, but his promises. And that that statement provided motivation for me to go back to scriptures and take a good hard look. What has he promised me in this in-between stage, this lifetime right now, and what has he not promised me? It's a good thing to do. And so here's some of the things I've discovered. God has promised me his eternal life, but not a long life. God did not promise my wife a long life with her first husband. People have told me those who have lost a spouse, it's like being amputated. God has promised me perfect health on the new earth, but not on this earth. God has promised me his comfort, but not a life without pain. God has promised me his righteousness, but not righteous people. God has promised me his home in heaven, but not a house on earth. Did you ever think about that? Jesus promised us food and clothing, but not even a house. Why? Because in scripture, we are called strangers here. One person said you could translate that word that Peter uses, we're refugees. God has promised me his wedding feast, but not a spouse. God has promised me his joy, but not a life without sorrow. God has promised me his power, but not a life without weakness. God has promised me his wisdom, but not a life without questions. God has promised me his guidance, but not a life without confusion. God has promised me his presence, but not a life without loneliness. God has promised me his blessing, but not a life without obedience God has promised me his love, but not a life without rejection. God has promised me his peace, but not a life without turmoil. So I've had to go back to scripture and take a good, hard look at what he has promised me and what he has not promised me, because I have a tendency to have a preconceived idea as to how, when, and where Jesus should work, and it's based on imagination and not revelation. In this passage where Paul says things like, we're afflicted in every way, but not crushed, we're perplexed, but not despairing, there's always that word, but. And he uses that just to let us know that things are not always going to be this way. And you know what? I love the old King James Version that short phrase, it came to pass. So things are not always going to be this way. But more importantly, I'm not always going to be this way because through those hard things, he's going to change me. We are afflicted in every way. But not crushed. We sometimes adopt a German word in the English language. It's the word angst. It means fear. And that word in German comes from another word in German, enge. And that means to put, be put, put in a very tight place. Like your life is under such pressure that you don't have many options. In fact, they could be decreasing to get you out of that situation. And there are a lot of things in life that put us in affliction or a tight place. Unfulfilled desires, lack of opportunity, poor health, relationships that go bad. And, and the thing is that people start talking about, you know, all these wonderful options, but they don't apply to your situation. You're afflicted. You say with Job, he has walled up my way so that I cannot... and he has put darkness on my paths. You know, I was raised by a post-war generation and when we were at Charles and, and, and Gail's place, I told you about one of them. And these guys experienced hardship during the war and after the war. Some of them lost their fathers in the war. And one week before this brother went to be with the Lord, he looked at me and says, Peter, you need to learn how to live in your God-given limitations. You need to learn to live in a tight place. Because God may not give you a wide place like you see him giving other Christians. So just learn to live with your limitations. Scripture says the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. And then it says in Psalm 34 and verse 19, many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. And that deliverance may come when I live in the new heavens and the new earth. How on earth am I supposed to know that the Lord can deliver unless he puts me in affliction? Then he says, we are perplexed, but not despairing. The word perplexed comes from a Latin word. It means to be involved. It means to, to, to be standing before a knot that you can't untie. And things get so complicated in life, you're perplexed. And here's the deal. Sometimes people can come and in an effort to counsel or comfort you, they give you about a half answer and then you walk away frustrated because you're shaking your head inside and you say, you know what, thanks for your your try, but it's a little bit more complicated than that. That's hard. I love the German translation of this verse. It says, Keinen Ausweg sehend, aber doch nicht ohne Ausweg. What that means is, we see no way out. And yet, there's a way. The way out is always a person, not a plan. And although we may see no way out of this situation that is so complex, I I just don't know how we're going to get through this. There is one who said, I am the way and the truth and the life. One of my staff members, Andy McDonald, has has three young kids. We just love him to death. And sometimes he goes hiking in in the Alps that you saw in those pictures. And they have these backpacks you can put small kids in there. While fathers hike. And they come back with chocolate in their hair and all kinds of stuff. Well, Andy puts Charlotte on his back. And when they head in to the Swiss Alps for a hike... And they come to the sign that that says, well, you can go this way or this way. The great thing about Charlotte is she isn't burdened with the decision. She can leave that to Andy. You know, if the path is flat or it gets steeper, she doesn't need to worry about the pace that they're going. That's Andy's problem. And if bad weather comes and things get tough, well, she's covered up there The weather is his problem. For Charlotte, Andy is the way. For you and for me, Jesus is the way. And the highest calling in the life of a Christian is to maintain fellowship with Christ. And you leave the consequences of your obedience to him. Discipleship is very simply the process of learning how to remain rightly related to Jesus no matter what happens. And I'll tell you what, I live in perplexity. As I'm called upon to lead and shepherd 26 works around the world in, in totally different situations than what I'm used to in Germany, whether that be in Indonesia and Malaysia or India, whether that be in Australia right now when we're, where we're facing brush fires, I don't know what to do sometimes. I'm saying, Lord, I didn't ask to be here. But I'm learning that He's my way all the time. And I live in utter dependence upon Him for all that He has given and entrusted to me. Paul says, We're struck down but not destroyed. Again, I love this, this post-war generation. In particular, a guy named Billy Strachan. Billy Strachan's father was in, uh, lived in Glasgow. He grew up in a pub. His father used to beat him, telling me he was worth nothing. One day, I don't know if there was a stage or somewhere in this pub, but he got up there as a kid, started making faces at the people sitting at the bar, and he realized he could make them laugh that was the way to gain some type of belonging and acceptance among people he became a professional comedian the British forces found this out and they, his job was to entertain the troops kind of like Bob Hope did in his day and one day he came to Christ he knelt in a cleaning closet in the barracks where he was located he received Christ and when he was released from, from service, he went to Cape and Real Hall, that, that small little country home in northern England that I showed you. He gave them all the money that he had, and he had the clothes on his back and, and asked if he could stay, and they said, sure, you can stay here. And they took him on and, and because he only had one, one suit of clothes, he used to wash his clothes and he would sit stark naked in his room as he wait, waited for those clothes to dry on, on a clothing line. The Christians came in and were, 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 were disgusted. There's a guy sitting nude in his room. But nobody asked the question, do you have a second shirt? He'd go down in the piano and because of his joy in the Lord, he'd start playing the songs that he learned in his father's bar because he didn't know any hymns and the Christians were upset because he was singing these bar songs on the piano. How dare he do that? I loved him. He had a tough life. But as soon as he smelled my self-pity, he wouldn't put up with that for one second. I'd go to him and tell him how much I was suffering. And he'd just look at me and he'd say, well, has it killed you yet? We could arrange for that. I brought a quote this morning by a guy named Oswald Chambers. Oswald Chambers was 43 years old when he died on the operating table. They were doing a a very simple surgery on his appendix. And he was sent as a chaplain to northern Africa, and he set up a tent that could hold 450 people. And it was in that tent that he would give these British soldiers devotionals, and his wife would would sit in there and she would take notes. And on the basis of those notes, they brought out a devotional book called My Outmost for His Highest. He said this about self-pity. All the Almighty God is ours in the Lord Jesus, and He will tax the last grain of sand and the remotest star to bless us if we obey Him. What does it matter if external circumstances are hard? Why should they not be? If we give way to self-pity and indulge in the luxury of misery, we banish God's riches from our own lives and hinder others from entering into his provision. No sin is worse than the sin of self-pity because it obliterates God and puts self-interest upon the throne. It opens our mouths to spit out murmurings and our lives become craving spiritual sponges and there's nothing lovely about them. Friends, anything that strikes us down and humbles us is a blessing in disguise. You see, the spirit of God is like water. He always flows downhill and you find him at the lowest place. And some things bring us low. Brought a verse on the PowerPoint this morning that I want to close as I be that I want to read as I begin to close this message in our time this morning. Paul said in Second Corinthians chapter one and verse three, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. My father learned how to scuba dive, and he learned how at a health club in Minneapolis. In the winters in Minnesota, we do things like ice fish. So you can't learn how to scuba in the winter, but he did at the health club. He brought his little certificate, and I said, well, what would you see down there, the plug? And so he decided he was going to do the real thing and he went to the Florida Keys and they were sitting in a glass bottom boat with all their equipment on and before they went backwards into the ocean the instructor stopped them and he said I want you to always remember this about scuba diving. You never take anybody deeper than you yourself have already gone. And when I heard that I took a mental note because that holds true in the kingdom of God. You can only take others as far as you yourself have already gone. And God may give us the privilege of going deep into affliction and suffering and pain. And we don't make light of those things and we don't have to call a bad thing good. It's just the reality of life. God may give us a hard life in order to give us a soft heart for people. Amy Carmichael was a lady who was born and raised in Northern Ireland, and she sensed the call of God to missions on her life at a very young age. In fact, she was engaged to be married, and then she gave that up to become a missionary first in Cyprus, Japan, and then she went to India. And while she was traveling around with a group of people in southern India who were evangelizing, she found out that young children, girls in particular, were sold into sex slavery. God placed it on her heart to save them, and she and a group of other people began a ministry called the Donover Fellowship that exists to this day. The last 20 years of her life were spent suffering. She walked onto a construction site when she couldn't see. It was later at night and she fell one story down and she basically was bedridden the last 20 years of her life and she wrote a book from a sufferer to sufferers. It's called Rose from the Briar. And I brought a quote from her on the PowerPoint this morning and she said this. She said, the power to help others lie in the acceptance of a trampled life. Sometimes God gives us a hard life to give us a soft heart. And we need to be good stewards with our sufferings. Amy Carmichael remained in India for 51 years. She never got married and she never took furlough. You know, honestly, sometimes our suffering does not make sense to us. Could it be that God has entrusted us with that suffering to prepare us in a unique way to help somebody else? Steve, you said this last night. Where does a cancer patient go who's suffering from cancer to somebody else who's been that road before? And could it be that God entrusts us with some of these things because He is preparing us to come alongside somebody else at a later date? Because we've met the God of all comfort there, who comforts us in all our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction afterwards. The psalmist said in Psalm 56 and verse 58, you've taken account of my wanderings, Put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? Friends, you and I are going to learn much more from our tears than our laughter. Gabi and I got married. We went on a honeymoon to Egypt. Then we took the kids skiing in Austria. And... uh, Gabi, because of something she ate in Egypt, got a kidney infection. And so at the end of our honeymoon, she had to go to the hospital and stay there for a number of days. And all of a sudden, I was a single dad with these two kids. It was like being with Uncle Buck, for those of you who've seen that movie. <laughs> Kati comes into the room, can I wear this to school? Heck yeah, looks good to me. <laughs> can we watch TV until 8.30? Well, I am, why don't you join me? I had no clue because we didn't have time to talk about the rules before she went to the hospital. I got more sympathy in that week than she did in eight years, kind of ticked her off. We go to visit her in the hospital and the kids would say, can we go now? (laughs) Because they kind of enjoyed having single dad who had no clue at home. I mean, Gabi was a single mom. She had to run a tight ship. We moved down to Fruitysoft, and, and, then, and then we moved into our home. One day, Cotty comes down from breakfast, and she goes, smells like popcorn. Who was eating popcorn last night? I kind of sheepishly raise my hand. I say, I did. She looks at me, and she said, well, what was the occasion? occasion was I had uh, you know lectures last night and I just you know threw a bag in in the microwave and sat in front of the TV and ate the whole bag myself she said mom can he do that I said welcome to your new life baby popcorn without an occasion it's wonderful do it all the time been doing it for years Well, I'll tell you what, you know, the kids would go down, go to school and I had a lot of time in my wife's apartment in Stuttgart. So I started to snoop around, because we didn't have kind of a dating relationship, things went pretty quick, and I was a little bit curious, who is this woman? <laughs> and you know what? I found her diaries. Do you know why you had that reaction? (laughs) Because a diary is something deeply personal. God has a diary. And he knows about the things in my life and yours that cause the tears. He knows. He has a book. And he's not going to waste those tears. And he's not going to waste that pain. It's very precious to him, what he entrusts to his children. You know, when a person breaks their arm, they usually wear a, a, a carry it or wear a cast. And we ask the question well, how'd you break your arm? A person has a broken heart, they don't wear a cast. The book of Proverbs says that even in laughter, the heart can be in pain. And that makes suffering very lonely. Because you can be standing in this room this morning singing worship songs and experiencing agony on the inside. And then what, you know, what makes it hard is, is some people, instead of risking saying the wrong thing to you in your suffering, they say nothing. And that just compounds the loneliness. You can't blame them. I understand what they say, but a sufferer is a lonely person. I went to our center in Austria a couple of years ago and I was sitting at the table at the beginning of the week and I sat across the table from a man who is obviously much older than the other students there and I said to him, are you you retired? Is that what allows you to come here for these six months? He said, no. I said, are you taking a sabbatical from work? No. I said, why would you come here? And he said, my wife died six months ago. That's why I'm here. It got really quiet at the table because I'm not sure if everybody knew that. And I looked at him and I said, well, that's very interesting because I married a widow and that's kind of given me a window into that experience. And when I said that, he burst into tears. We had a good week together. And at the end of the week, he came up to me and he said, could I drive to your home to speak with your wife? I said, absolutely. So he drove that six, seven hours from Vienna to my home to sit at our dining room table with Gabi. And all she needed to say was, I understand. Sometimes that's all the sufferer needs. Somebody who understands. They don't preach a sermon, they shed a tear. And the comfort that they've received in Christ through their own suffering is extended to somebody else in a supernatural way. That's why we need the community. It's made up of the various experiences represented in this room to be able to minister to one another in that way. Paul says, we're always carrying about in the body the dying of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our body. You don't pour water into a cracked pot because it can't hold its contents. Those are the very vessels that God uses. And for the very same reason, they can't hold in Christ. He comes through the cracks. I'm almost done and I have a picture of a guy that I've never met and I look forward to meeting him. His name is Ludwig Krapf. You will not find a modern biography on this man's life. You can Google him. He was born in 1810 outside of Tübingen in Germany. He went to a Bible school in Basel and then studied theology in Tübingen to become a pastor and his first pastorate was a disaster. He heard from a friend that he'd been in Bible school with in Basel that a mission in England was looking for missionaries to go to East Africa, in particular Ethiopia. He signed up with his mission and he boarded a boat in southern England. And they were, they were traveling down the uh, west coast of France. And his partner passed away on the boat. And he had to do the funeral on land near Marseille. The widow left behind became his wife. And they arrived in Ethiopia. Because they thought with that rich tradition that they have in that, in that country. That people would be open to, get to the gospel. Well they weren't. And they said get out of town, we've given your soul over to the devil and your bodies to the wolves, so just leave. So they left with a group of nationals and they're traveling down the east coast of Africa and his wife had their first child and after she gave birth to that child, it died. And the nationals said, you bury that baby now, or we're leaving you here in the desert. They buried that baby under a tree and landed in Mombasa at which time they were both afflicted with a disease that affected their nerves. She gave birth to their second child. She died, and after she died, the child died. And he and his friend, and associate named Johannes Reitmann, wanted to build a road across inland Africa, something that had never been done, going from east to west with a mission station 100 kilometers apart along the way. And they started out, and they would suck wet sand in the morning, hopefully to get some moisture out of it, and they would eat elephant dung to stay alive. They were robbed by people, and one day... On the horizon, they saw a snow-capped mountain. And they wrote back to England and said they discovered this mountain. And the British thought they're losing their mind. Because there's no way that there's a mountain that close to the equator with snow on it. But they had discovered Mount Kilimanjaro. ultimately he got so sick that he had to go back home to Germany he married his second wife who was from Stuttgart she died he married his his house you know kind of his maid and and one day she walked into his study and he was dead on the floor after he'd been praying on his knees and the reports on his life are he was a miserable missionary saw only one convert his whole life he was a good explorer though But what they failed to understand is that he was a gifted linguist. And he learned six of the tribal languages, one in particular called Swahili. And he wrote the Bible in that language with his partner. And the reason why there are so many people who know Christ in Kenya and Tanzania today goes back to this man's life. My wife writes to the German consulate in Nairobi, and it's called the Ludwig Kopf House. pastor friend of mine told me every kid in Kenya knows this guy's name. I was sitting next to a brother from Kenya in, in England, and I looked at him and I said, you ever heard of Ludwig Kopf? He said, no. And I was disappointed. <laughs> I said, he has something to do with your language. And he said, oh, you mean Dr. Kopf? They hold him in such veneration, they didn't know his first name. But he never, ever saw the day of what Jesus made out of his life and ministry. Friends, we may never see the day. Just keep on keeping on. Mrs. Thomas, who I showed you a picture of, she's 98. And she said, you know, for many years, I lived in the why, Lord, years. (laughs) why don't we have more staff? Why do we have so little money? Why is my husband on preaching tours that take him away from me from six to nine months out of the year? And I can feel the looks of the people in my church just digging into the back of my head wondering if everything's okay in their marriage. She said the wonderful thing about getting older is you live in the that's why years. Oh, that's why sometimes we get a little glimpse. One last quote I want to leave you with before I pray. Always remember, the master doesn't waste his servant's time. He's not going to waste our suffering. He's not going to waste those things that cause us pain. And we might not understand now, but there's going to be a day when we'll be able to say, Thanks, Lord. That's why. Father, I want to pray for somebody here this morning who's enveloped in darkness and in that darkness very lonely. Lord, we want to be good stewards of the things that perplex us and cause us pain. And I pray that in a way that only you can, that you would allow the life of Christ to be manifest in us As we come along, somebody in the future and are able to say, I understand. Thanks for the body and those who have been prepared for this ministry, Lord. Bless them. We'll give you all the glory one day when we live in the new heavens and the new earth and everything that's gone wrong here is going to be made right there. Thank you. In your name we pray. Amen. God bless you. Thank you. You hate to even have an ending after that, so we ought to just leave.